So for those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, along with that congregation, turn with me again to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> if you're joining us for the first time or perhaps uh, our, our guest this morning, just a reminder that we do preach and teach expositionally, which means we take, uh, generally take a book and we... Uh, begin in the first chapter, the first verse, and go to the end chapter in the last verse. And we've done that uh, religiously, if you want to use that word, for almost uh, 28, 29 years now. Looked at a number of passages of Scripture over time, a number of books. And we've been in First Peter off and on. We don't, we don't do it, uh, we do it almost every Sunday, but then we take a break and we're coming up on Christmas, so we'll be looking at some different messages for, for the Christmas time. But we've been in here off uh, uh, probably right at a year. This is message number, if you're keeping count, message number 62, just for your information. Now, we're going to do something a little differently this morning in that we're going to begin in verse 18. We're going to read through verse 6 of chapter 4. We spent a great deal of time looking at uh, these uh, verses here, 19 and 20, and actually 19 through 21, and this morning we're going to close out chapter 3 with verse 22. But I do want you uh, to remember that the chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. So we're in one of those particular uh, unique positions now that verse 22 is where uh, some of the individuals determined to finish chapter 3, but it actually goes through verse 6 of chapter 4. So we find these words, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, <clears throat> being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Therefore... Because of this, that's a doxology Peter's closing out chapter 3 with. Therefore, since Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Because of the doxology at the close of chapter 3, Peter continues into what we have as chapter 4, speaking about ceasing from sin. Let's go to 
again to the throne of grace, and we will pick up in uh, with a slight review and then look at verse 22 this morning. Let's pray. Father, illuminate our hearts and minds by the Spirit today. We pray that where we are incorrect, that you would correct us. We pray, Father, that where we are ignorant, that you would fill us with your wisdom and your knowledge. And we pray that while, while there are sinners perhaps in our midst, we do pray that you would move in their hearts to bring them to salvation. And for the saints that are here this morning, challenge and uh, comfort us with the wonder of these words. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. All right, if you would, Brother Logan, let's open with uh, slide 454. Now, this is sort of a review from last Sunday morning. I reminded you that this passage of Scripture that we're looking at, verses 18 through 22, but primarily 19 through 21, uh, is perhaps the most difficult passage in the New Testament, certainly in First and Second Peter. And we spent a quite a bit of time going through these verses to do our best to uh, interpret, apply, and exegete these so that we understand what Peter is saying. I mentioned last week uh, we have now three messages that are online. If you go to flatcreekfamily.org, uh, you can follow along with, uh, on sermon audio with the messages that are here. So we're not going to go back through those in particular. But I do want to remind you that verses 19, 20, oh, excuse me, verses 20 and 21 speak of baptism, and we spent quite a bit of time talking about the ordinance of baptism. And so if you will look at the highlighted second bulletin there, I want to remind you again that water baptism does not save. And that's what Peter says when he says, not the removal of the filth of the flesh. In verse 21, okay, it is the Holy Spirit that baptizes the sinner safely into Christ. And Christ is the elects, those of us that know Jesus as Savior, we, the only ark of salvation. Christ rescues sinners from hell, and he brings us to heaven. That's what verse 22 says. We also closed out by saying we, obviously, Baptist, and it goes back in history, hundreds of years. So let's not demean the importance of baptism. While it doesn't save, it does communicate the promise of God to all who believe. And we don't despise God's word. And because we don't despise his word, we don't disobey his command to be baptized. And that's found in the great commissions of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The symbol of baptism depends on the integrity of God. Nothing that we do, no, there's nothing that we do that brings about the integrity of our salvation. It's what God does for us. And again, that has to do or comes back to the symbol of baptism that Peter is talking about. It's not in a priest or a pastor who administers baptism or in the virtue of those re that receive it. It lies strictly in the power of God. The gospel is always in the power of God. 
not in our ability to understand it or ability to appropriate Jesus. It is always, always in the power of God. Through faith alone, by grace alone, from the scriptures alone, in Christ alone. Tom Askell wrote this about Charles Spurgeon. He says, At no time was the pulpit courage more obvious than in the baptismal regeneration debate of 1864. Spurgeon became embroiled in that. Spurgeon knew full well that he was stirring up the rattlesnake's den by preaching against the teaching of the Anglican Church, which taught baptismal regeneration. Now, many of them do not today, but then they did. He told his publisher beforehand that he was about to destroy the sale of his printed sermons uh, because he was sure that the controversy would cost him many friends and provoke many attacks. Now, as it turned out, this was one of the sermons. He preached a series of sermons on the, uh, on the ordinance of baptism. As it turned out, he was indeed viciously attacked, and he did lose friends. But the sermons that he preached immediately sold more than 100,000 copies and ultimately more than three times that amount. So it is important to remember that, yeah, there are times when we need to preach the truth and preach it in love. And that's what Spurgeon did. We trust that you take uh, what we have been preaching over these past few weeks with the understanding that we are preaching it in love. So next slide, if you would. So in verse 18, we looked at the reality of a risen Savior. Verses 19 through 21, we looked at the example of a ridiculed Noah. And this morning, we're going to close out this passage in verse 22 with the reign of the Redeemer. Now, let's read that again. Of course, it's a long sentence in Peter's writing, but verse 22 says, Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers, having been made subject to him. So one thing that Peter does in his epistles, and he does it beautifully, he always remembers the cross. Now, Peter was not at the cross. Only John was one the apostle that was at the cross. But Peter understood the cross. He was at Christ's resurrection. He certainly was there when Christ was tried. He denied him. He was at the resurrection, and then, of course, he was at the ascension as well. But Peter hearkens back to the cross, and he declares that Jesus not only bore our sins victoriously, that's what these middle verses have been teaching us, but that he declared a message of triumph over defeated demons. That's what the phrase angels and authorities and powers refers to. He ascended in victory to God the Father. He now has that power, as he's always had, by the way, over angels, over demons, over all authorities, whether they be universal, whether they be earthly, and he has authority over you and I. That hasn't changed, never has changed, never shall change. Just because we don't feel like God has authority over, over us does not mean that he does. Just because we feel like we're not sinners doesn't mean that we are not sinners. Scripture is very clear. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So there are four things I want us to look at this morning in this verse. Number one, he's the redeemer at God's right hand. 
And there's a reason for that statement that is made. In fact, we're going to look at some others, too, that speak of Jesus being in God's right hand. Peter's talked about the flood. He's talked about baptism. He's talked about the ark. And Jesus is our ark of safety. And he has been an ark of safety for us through history. This is, as I've mentioned a number of times, for the believer on the Lord's day, this is our safe place. This is a place where we can come, we can lay aside the cares of our day-to-day activity, and we can plunge into the grace of Jesus Christ and leave here sufficient in the knowledge that Christ has ascended to heaven and is at the right hand of God. It's not going to happen. It has happened. Peter is teaching those that he is writing to, those that were dispersed about the Roman Empire, those that were suffering persecution for the name of Christ, as was Peter and his wife. He is writing that suffering can be withstood because Christ has won the climatic crescendo note of triumph in his ascension back to his father. All of this occurred because of the cross. Every bit of it occurred because of the cross. The right hand of God is always understood as a place of highest preeminence. It is a place of strength. It is a place of preeminence, meaning no one else, angel or demon, or man, woman, boy, or girl, has this place in all of this universe or the universes that may exist beyond us. For heaven is not in this universe. It is a place of strength, preeminence, and authority. And Peter has talked a great deal about submitting to authority in the middle verses of chapter 2. Now, turn with me. I've got a couple of the quotes here, but I want, to, want us to read it at length. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. <clears throat> turn back a couple of, chap- uh, cu- a couple of books, the uh, book of uh, James and then the book of Hebrews. <coughs> so this beautiful introduction to the epistle written to the Hebrews. We're not sure who wrote this. There are many, many, many uh, theories, if you would. I don't think Paul wrote it. Many do, but I don't. And because I don't, then I'm right. So anyway, that's the way it goes. Uh, and I'm preaching this morning, and you can disagree with me if you, uh, if you so choose. But notice the beauty of these verses and how it describes our Savior. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. That's the Old Testament. Don't throw the Old Testament out like the baby with the bathwater. Has in these last days spoken to us by son. And your versions, your English versions, the word his sometimes is inserted but it's in italics, which means it was not there in the original manuscripts. So it reads, has in these last days spoken to us by son. 
whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself, we taught exclusively a few weeks ago about the fact in verse 18 of 1 Peter 3, it says that Christ died once. We do not subscribe to, nor do we think that the Roman Catholics are right because they extend the mass each and every week claiming that Christ once again dies. Here in the book of Hebrews, it says he died once. In fact, many times in the book of Hebrews it says that. And Peter himself said, in that he died once for sins. He purged our sin. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, and he has by inheritance the Stephanus and the Diademus crown obtained a more excellent name than any angel. Any, because all angels, the four living creatures, those that are described to us in the book of Ezekiel and in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation, every single one of them is created. Only God is eternal and everlasting. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. You are my, the word begotten there is the monogenes. I, Jesus is the singular focus of the love of God the Father. And from that extends love to us. From him extends love to us. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Quoting from Psalms 2, let all the angels... When he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. One of the things that you and I will experience when we go home to be with the Lord Jesus Christ is the countless angels, holy angels, worshiping Jesus Christ. The countless saints, Old Testament, New Testament, Worshiping Jesus Christ. The crescendo of the noise of us lifting our voices. Worthy is the lamb that was slain once. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 5, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. You should underline that. There's a lot of misunderstanding and just downright lying about angels. The worlds are not in subjection to angels. That's what Peter is saying. But one testified in a certain place, speaking of David in Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. That's our position as human beings. We were made lower than the angels 
in order that we might be promoted above the angels. And this was complicated by Adam and Eve sinning and you and I sinning. Peter goes on to say in chapter 4, He that has ceased from sin, he that is dead, rather, has ceased from sin. Do you tired of sin? I do. But sin will not be removed from me in this world in its entirety until I die. And that applies to you as well. Who was made a little lower, fashioned a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And set him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. Okay? Principalities, powers, authorities, you and I. For in that he put all in subjection under his feet, he left nothing. He, God the Father, left nothing that is not put under him. But now we don't see all things put under him. And we can look at the world and we see that. Because sinners, lost sinners, are still in subjection to, them, to him, but are not, do not respond to his authority. Nonetheless, we see Jesus, the author says, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, that the angels, uh, that was crowned rather with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. God cannot die. We cannot kill the triune God. Nothing can terminate his life. But when Jesus became the God-man incarnate, he was put to death. Because he was man. Because of Christ's obedience, because of his condescension, all the angels of God, holy and evil, are told to worship him. Next slide. We're then told in Hebrews chapter 12. We could fast forward to the end, but we can read, read it here. These are... Uh, uh, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 are my life verses, beautiful verses that they are. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of faith. We don't conjure up faith. It is a gift of the Spirit of God that comes because Jesus authored it and Jesus perfected it at Calvary. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The New Testament many, many, many times states Christ died, he was resurrected, and he ascended to the right hand of God. Christ Jesus in Romans 8, that marvelous passage of Scripture, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who's that? the right hand of God. Philippians 2, Paul would write there, therefore God highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And then he defines every knee. Of those who are in heaven, all angelic beings, regardless of who they may be, the cherubim, the seraphim, the archangels, the living creatures, ad infinitum, all of them, will fall down. And those of us that are on the earth, that's you and I, will fall down. And then those that are under the earth, those that perhaps are the habitation of demons, all, every creature, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it's vitally important that we confess that in this life. For as we learned in studying verses 19 through 21, there is no second chance. The second chance that you and I receive is in this life, not in the life to come. Peter had witnessed the resurrection and the ascension. And now he exalts his Savior for his triumphant victory by saying, having gone into heaven. Peter saw the ascension. A couple of years ago on Easter Sunday morning, I preached about the ascension rather than the resurrection. Because the ascension is pertinent to, it is the completion of the earthly work of Jesus, and it is his claiming as the preeminent one to a position of authority of his father. Now, he never lost that. Never lost it. But in his obedience and his condescension, it was shifted until Calvary, the resurrection, and the ascension were complete. That's the first one. Christ is the Redeemer at God's right hand. Secondly, verse 22 teaches us he is the Redeemer that has conquered all enemies. As it says, all powers and authorities, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. All enemies. Paul would write to the church at Ephesus. He says, Christ was raised from the dead seated at God's right hand in heavenly places. Now understand, if you're listening, say amen. amen. Understand something about God. God is spirit. So when the Bible speaks of God having a right hand as a big, huge theological term, anthropomorphism, it just means that we attribute some of the the human condition to God, although God is spirit, doesn't have a right hand, doesn't need a right hand. We do know there's a throne in heaven. From what we know now, Jesus occupies that throne, and that throne is in a position of authority because God the Father has delineated that to him. So, Paul says he is at the right hand in heavenly places. 
He's far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named. And since Paul lacks for the ability to, to use a term to describe that far above, when, we, when we're talking about the attributes of God, when we talk about the nature of God, when we talk about the holiness of God, his power, his authority, we, we suffer for words. We can't define it in any language, regardless of whether it's English or Greek or Hebrew. We can't define it because it's beyond our comprehension to be able to ascribe to Christ Jesus where he falls in the scheme of things because he doesn't. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age. Now, this was what Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus um, about 60 or so A.D. But also the age to come. When this whole earth and the universe are eliminated. Peter talks about that in 2 Peter chapter 3. When it's gone. And because of that, he's put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, this beautiful verse, verse 22, next slide, teaches us that through unjust suffering, Christ, there was, there was nothing. In fact, the thief on the cross said, this man has done nothing worthy of death. And so Peter says in verse 18, the just one suffered the injustices of unjust people of whom Peter was one, of whom you and I were one. And so the unjust suffering of Christ, who is the just one, triumphed, and it was through the unjust suffering that Christ gained his great and his glorious victory, that he triumphed over spirits, he triumphed in salvation, and he triumphed as God the Son at the right hand of God the Father. You run out of superlatives. You run out of adjectives to describe. Peter ran out of them. Paul runs out of them to describe the worthiness of Jesus Christ. So what's the point of this passage? Are we to get hung up on verse 19 when it talks about the spirits in prison? Again, we went through that. Are we to get hung up on verses 20 and 21 when it talks about baptism? Absolutely not. Peter's talking about suffering. He has been. And he says, you ought to look on your unjust suffering. If we suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ, it's unjust. We're no different from Jesus. And Jesus said, if the world hated, you, hated me, it's going to hate you. The servant is not greater than his master. We're to look on our unjust suffering as the path of triumph and victory. Well, preacher, I don't like that. I don't either. Jesus did not like it. That's why the Hebrews said he despised. the unjustness that was placed on him. And so, 
the Redeemer has conquered all his enemies. Thirdly, the Redeemer's unjust treatment means his people will reign with him. Do you know the Lord is Savior this morning? I trust that you do. I trust that at some point in your life, the Spirit of God has revealed who Christ is to you and you have, and who you are before Christ and you have repented of your sins and called out to him. The unjust suffering of this world that you and I suffer for the cause of Christ, and we do. Spurgeon did. Paul did. Peter did. Jesus did. We have, we have lulled ourselves into believing that, and in fact, <clears throat> I remember when I was uh, in high school, which has been many, many years ago, people talked about America being a Christian nation. Do you hear that anymore? Do you hear it? No, you don't. Why? Because although there are Christians in America, we are no more Christian than other nations. We have been lulled into believing that everybody we meet, everybody in our family, all of our friends are believers, and sometimes they are. We suffer unjustly at the hands of anyone who would mistreat a child of God. And because of that, we will be glorified with Paul writes again in the Romans chapter 8 and if children we are heirs we've been adopted we're heirs heirs of God and because of Christ we're fellow heirs he's our elder brother if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him and from what we know about Scripture and what Peter is teaching here to these people, the path of suffering is what the triune God requires to reach glory. It was what he required of his Son. It is what it is required of us. If he required it of his Son, he will require it of joint heirs. Paul wrote to Timothy, a young pastor at the church at Ephesus, 2 Timothy, he says, For this reason, I endure all things. Paul says, I know it's coming. In fact, in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, he says, The time of my departure, the time of my death is at hand, and I'm ready to go. I endure all things for the sake of those who have chosen that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Yes, we're saved in this life, but we will try, be triumphant in the life to come because of our elder brother. Paul said it's a trustworthy, trustworthy statement. It's a statement that's like a fiduciary who gives up all their rights so that your rights take precedence over theirs. That's what Jesus did. 
And Peter is describing that here in this last verse of chapter 3. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, Paul said, I endure. And he goes on to say, if we endure. He doesn't say, we might endure. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. The Redeemer's unjust treatment means his people will reign with him. And then number four this morning, Christ Jesus was triumphant and reigns over our last enemy, our physical death. Every person I'm speaking to this morning from the pulpit through the congregation, those that may be watching, listening via the internet, the last enemy is death, and we will all. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. We will all die. Christ died. His children will die. It's the last enemy. It's, in fact, in this life, our greatest In Table Talk Magazine, <clears throat> which Robbie and I have been receiving for a number of years, the very the last uh, <coughs> article in this magazine every month is entitled The Last Things. And so this particular article is Facing the Last Enemies, written by uh, Dr. Guy Prentice Waters. And he says this, The resurrection is the triumph of Jesus Christ over sin and death. Not only death, but sin. That's what Peter says in chapter 4. He that has died has ceased from sin. Death is the enemy of the sinner because it is the divinely appointed penalty for sin. In Christ's death and resurrection, Christ has conquered death for his people because Christ bore the penalty of sin in his own humanity on the cross and because God lifted the sentence of death from Jesus in raising him from the dead, God in Christ has won a complete victory over his people's greatest enemy, death. Death is the last enemy because as believers we have yet to fully experience the victory of Christ. That fullness will come when we are raised from the grave at Christ's return. The reason that Paul writes this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, is to reassure us that in Christ this hope is, uh, is certain. He goes on to say, people fear death for a good reason. It's fearful. Death is unnatural. It's not part of God's original plan for humanity. But death is rather the penalty that God justly inflicts for sin. While God may and does use death for good, 
Death is not a positive good. It's an evil. God hates death. He hates the sin that brings death. We're to hate the sin that brings death, and we're to hate death. Death is the ultimate separation. It separates the soul from the body. It separates us from our loved ones, our possessions, our dreams and ambitions in this world. Ultimately, death separates the impenitent sinner from the favorable presence of God himself. One glorious truth of the gospel is not only that Christ has conquered death, but also that Christ has delivered every person who trusts in him from slavery of the fear of death. Believers have no cause to fear death because of what Christ has done on our behalf. But that does not mean that even the strongest believer is beyond the reach of the fears that death can bring. Thankfully, Scripture speaks to these fears. We ought to be studying and meditating on the teaching of Scripture and seeking wise biblical counsel now to prepare ourselves if those fears surface in our lives. couple of things and I'll close this morning. He says we don't write or think much about death until it happens maybe to our family or to close loved ones or whatever. And he says there are a couple of reasons for that. I used to work with a man that would not go to a funeral. And I can remember I shared faith with him several times. I can remember uh, I think it was his father-in-law that passed away, and we were talking about it. I asked him, I said, are you, are you going to the funeral? He said, no, I don't. It's unnatural. I said, yes, absolutely. It is unnatural. It is. I said, do you know why? He kind of hung his head. And so I had an opportunity to, to share the gospel with him. Yes, it's unnatural. Dr. Waters goes on to say, for one thing, our culture has perfected the art of distraction. Years ago, when people passed away, they laid them out in their homes. I've been preaching for 50 years. I don't know that I've ever been to a home in those 50 years where Someone was laid out for the wake. Perhaps you have, but I haven't. We sanitize death. He says, thanks to our electronic devices and what they make available to us, we have countless and countless, uh, countless and constant diversions at our fingertips. We therefore have to work that much harder to think about serious things. And I think you would agree with me, death is serious. For another thing, our culture distances us from death and dying in ways that were not part of the experiences of the past cultures. 
Hospital and nursing facilities perform wonderful services to the sick and dying, but much more so now than in the past. They are places where people die away from the presence of their family and the presence of their loved ones. Infant mortality, a tragic constant of human experience, has been blessed uh, has been blessedly lessened. For that reason, many homes, thankfully, do not know the tragic experience of losing a child. Because we are more removed from death than our ancestors were, we can lull ourselves into thinking that death may not break into our lives at any moment. Death is not the end of our conscience existence. Peter's talked twice in this chapter about our consciences. In fact, he also says in the latter part of verse 21, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Christ was triumphant and reigns over our last enemy, our physical death. Christ, in our understanding, resurrected himself back to life. You and I will not do that. Those of us that know the Lord as Savior will be filled yet again with the Holy Spirit and we will rise, as Paul said, thus shall we ever be with the Lord. Only Christ empowered to resurrect himself. Conquering the last So we have seen this morning in this verse the Redeemer who is at God's right hand. We have seen this morning in number two the Redeemer that has conquered all his enemies. We've seen this morning number three the Redeemer's unjust treatment means that you and I, those of us that know Jesus, will reign with him. And we've also seen that Christ Jesus was triumphant and reigns over our last enemy, our physical death. Now look, if you would, first couple of verses of chapter 4. I'm not going to preach anymore, but I just want to read these to you. Therefore, from what we know about Peter, essentially when he finished writing his second epistle, it wasn't very long before he and his wife were martyred. His wife was crucified before him. He was made to watch. And then he was crucified, and because he, Christ was crucified in an upright position, Peter said he didn't want to die that way, so he was crucified upside down, so tradition says. But nonetheless, he would write these words, since Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, Arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he has suffered in the flesh, has ceased from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Are we living that way this morning? Are we living for the will of God?
when we suffer and suffer unjustly, do we understand it is for the will of God? None of these individuals that we talked about this morning and obviously through the centuries, the millions and millions and millions that have been martyred for the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no mistake, that's probably going on. Certainly it's going on in the Ukraine and make no mistake, it's going on in the Middle East. It's been going on for years. And yet we've isolated and insulated ourselves from that. As Americans, we have a great responsibility to pray for them, to support the believers in other nations. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to, <clears throat> to be in, in Scotland. And there was a young man that was in an engineering firm. We were discussing uh, procedures and protocol for the equipment at that time that they were buying. And he looked at me and he said, uh, in his Scottish brogue, he said, Ernie, are you a believer? And it caught me off guard. I said, yes, sir, David was his name. Yes, sir, David, I am. He said, I am too. I said, are you part of the Church of Scotland? He said, no, we're part of the Free Church. And that's what they define it as, the Free Church. He said, the Church of Scotland is a political church. He said, you will rarely ever hear the name of Jesus Christ mentioned in the Church of Scotland. But in the Free Church, we mention it every Lord's Day. He went on to tell me, and he was a young man, probably 30-ish or so. He said, for years, I have performed every way this company has asked me to perform. I acquired my engineering degree. I acquired my, a master's degree. I went to become a professional engineer, all of these things. And he says, yet and still, I'm almost in an entry-level position. He'd been working for them for about 12, 15 years. In a country that is that where the Scottish Reformation 500 years ago changed a great many lives. He says, Ernie, it's coming to America. It's coming to America. Christ has triumphed. He reigns over our last enemy, but he wants us to know that we will suffer unjustly in this life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how far removed we are from the writings of Peter and Paul and John and so many others, from the teachings of Jesus himself. We've lulled, our, lulled ourselves into believing that because we have 
And we are, Father. We thank you and we praise you this morning. You have blessed us beyond our capacity. We're beyond what we indeed deserve. In fact, we don't deserve any of it. Teach us, Lord, as, as many this morning are American believers, teach us that as it comes to these shores that we would be persistent, that we would be submissive, that we would be individuals that not only claim the name of Jesus Christ, but live because we are joint heirs with him. We thank you that you died for us, was buried, ascended, reign now, continue to reign. And though we don't long to pass from this life to the life that is to come, we know that we are to be ready. For it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. So for any this morning that do not know your Savior, our prayer is that you would grant that by the Spirit of God this day so that they may leave this place knowing their sins are forgiven in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. As believers, equip us, as we talk about this next week, equip us with the mind of Christ who understood these things far better than any of us would ever understand them. And may we look forward to being united not only with our loved ones, but primarily with the name that is above each and every name, Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. And so we're going to sing a closing hymn this morning. <clears throat> if the Lord Jesus has spoken to you, if the Spirit of God has spoken to you, <clears throat> you're here today, and you're uncertain as to whether or not you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, that's actually good news, for that teaches that you have some concern about your relationship with God. And God wants to, to, to equip you with faith in order that you may confess your sins and come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to sing one verse this morning. If the Lord has spoken to you, you can make your way out of the pew. We can take you to a private prayer room and lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to speak with me after the service, by all means, stop and talk with me. I'll be glad to do that. As a child of God, we talked about following the Lord and believers' baptism last week. If you're here and you know the Lord is your Savior and you desire to become united with this church and follow the Lord and believers' baptism, we encourage you also to, do, to make that decision today or perhaps join by statement of faith, the transfer of letters. Child of God. Peter was writing to encourage people, but the way he was writing to them, obviously he was, he was promoting and looking at suffering because it is part and parcel of a Christian's life. What number, Brother Vance?